Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. We'll briefly review the context. We are still in the middle of this paragraph, and I want you to recall where we left off. But our focus this morning will be in verse 19 to the end of the chapter, verse 22. Our big focus or theme for today is this idea that now we belong. Now we belong. We're again about to conclude our study of Ephesians chapter 2, but recall with me that Ephesians chapter 2 is in many ways the heart of the book of Ephesians. It's the heartbeat to the book. Everything is leading up to it and everything after it's looking back on it in many ways. It's telling us about our position in Christ, who we are in Christ, our identity because of the gospel. The first 10 verses to the chapter is all about being raised and seated on the throne. We took uh, several weeks unpacking that marvelous section, but then we began looking at verses 11 to 22, the second half of the chapter, which is all about being reconciled and set in the temple. We'll see those thoughts climax here this morning in the final portions of the chapter. The big idea that we have big ideas, plural, that we've been looking at from verse 11 to the end of the chapter is as follows. We saw first, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this idea. We asked, what did God do? He brought us nigh or near by the blood of Christ. Being brought near by the blood was the theme of verses 11 to 13. That's announcing to us, and again, recall that chapter 2 is, is repetitive. It's the heartbeat of the book. But chapters one or chapter two, verses one to ten, is going to give us some major concepts about who we are, identity in Christ, etc. They're going to be repeated in verses eleven to twenty-two, just from a little bit different vantage point. So we're going to see that same basic flow of thought. First, what God did for us by bringing us nigh by the blood of Christ, verses eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Second, then we looked at how did God do this? How did He accomplish this? Well, Christ is our peace or our peacemaker. That was our focus last week from verse 14 to verse 18. We'll briefly review some of the big ideas of that as we pick it up uh, in verse 19. But not only did we see what God did do, what God uh, did by bring us nigh, how he did it by making Christ our peacemaker, but why did God do it? He did this so that he could make us fellow citizens and members of the household of God. That's really where Paul is driving. This is his big point is now because of who Christ is, because of what he's done, we now belong. We as Jew and Gentile have a place in the family of God. We belong to God's kingdom. And so this idea is what he climaxes with in verses 19 to 22. And so this is, again, the big concept or the big idea of our text is that because of the gospel, it is that we have in Christ, in the gospel, God has now made for us a place and he's given us a purpose. We belong. We have a purpose to life. This is a very important text in the, in the book of Ephesians because of this reality. It's very defining for, as to our identity who we are in Christ. God has made us a place in his kingdom and in his family and in his temple, and he's thereby given to us a purpose for living. So as we look at this paragraph, or this last section of the paragraph, verse 19 to 22, help me uh, reconstruct the context just briefly. We left off at the end of last time in verse 18. If you got your Bible, just briefly look down and recall where we left off. 
Christ is our peacemaker, right? He's the one that has abolished in his flesh the enmity that was between Jew and Gentile. He has brought us together, made one new man in Christ. But then look at verse 18. Here's the context that we need to remember before we jump into these final few verses. The context, verse 18 says, For through him we both, that is both Jew and Gentile, through him being Christ, through Christ we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. He ends with this big idea that we both have access. Both Jews and Gentiles go to the Father through Christ by the Spirit. We have the Trinity referenced here, Father, Son, and Spirit, their role in redemption and how it brings us to have access to the Father. We mentioned this in brief last time, but let me camp on it for just a moment because it helps set the tone for our text today in verses 19 to 22. But this idea of access is really an important key concept. The term access refers to the entrance into the Holy of Holies. In other words, if we were studying this from the perspective of the temple, which is what he's talking about, right? He he talked about we are brought nigh by the blood of Christ back in verse 13. We talked about it back then, but that is a Levitical reference. It's talking about us approaching God via the sacrificial system, coming into his presence. Well, he'll then mention the temple in our text here this morning and down in verse 22. So I'm reminding you of this context that he's talking about how both Jew and Gentile now have access to God. In fact, that word access, if you take it in the verb form, was the, the normal word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used in the book of Leviticus to talk about bringing offering to God uh, and, and the priesthood mediating our relationship with God. We would draw nigh unto God via the sacrifice that we could enjoy fellowship with God via that sacrifice. That sort of access is what he's talking about. Now, we didn't camp on this a lot last time. We have in other contexts at various times, but let me briefly rehearse it. In the Old Testament, you have several different sacrifices that were required in the book of Leviticus, all of which uh, were ultimately required depending on the scenario, the situation, the circumstance you find yourself in. But no matter your circumstance, to approach God, to have access to God, you had to come via a sacrifice. Whether it was your sin that you had to you know, receive God's forgiveness and atonement so that you could approach God, or fellowship offering. The, the offerings of the book of Leviticus are, are broadly divided into two major chunks, right? You have the voluntary, involuntary sacrifices. Involuntary meaning that when we mess up, right? When we want, if we are to have a right relationship with God, then we in our sinfulness must come via the sacrificial system. If we want that relationship with God, we have to come through that sacrificial system. However, there was also the voluntary sacrifice, or sometimes it's called the peace offering. And this is my my favorite one to just develop as we try to understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, because it's forecasting, it's foreshadowing what it is intended uh, to, to foreshadow in the New Testament. What Christ will accomplish through the gospel is being foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But the fellowship offering, you could come at any time. It was a voluntary sacrifice. And you had, because again, there were several times you had to come. There was prescribed offerings, times you came, various festivals throughout the year. You had to come and appear before God. But the, the 
peace offering or the fellowship offering, as it's sometimes called, you could come at any time. And it was the only offering that the worshiper actually got a portion of it back. Because typically you come bring an offering, that is taken by the priest, it's, it's put on the altar, and then the priests alone receive a portion back from that sacrifice. You as the you know, normal, average Israeli worshiper, you didn't receive that back, except for the peace or fellowship offering. In this particular scenario, you come and you offer this sacrifice before God, and then you get a portion of that back. And what you were then to do is to somewhere within the vicinity of the tabernacle, you would sit down and in view of that Shekinah glory of God that was hovering above the tabernacle, you would sit and you would eat your meal with God. And that's the idea of fellowship, right? You brought the sacrifice that was put on the altar. It's, you know, you gave it to God. It's God's sacrifice. It's holy. It's placed in that altar. Now God gives a portion of it back to you. And you sit down and you have a meal with God. You fellowship with God. That's a beautiful picture of, and, and we have several examples of this in the Old Testament, by the way. I love to develop uh, 1 Samuel, first couple of chapters, because Hannah, remember Hannah who is childless and she is longing for a child. And it says that she comes, you know, her and her family would come year by year and they would offer up. And we know it was a fellowship offering because they got a portion of it back, it says in the text. So they offer up a, a fellowship offering. And she's now eating her meal with God. She's in presence, the presence of God. She's in fellowship with God. So she decides then and there to pour out her heart to God. And she prays for a son. You know the story. God, of course, answers that. Miraculously, she conceives. And then, of course, that becomes one of the heroes of Old Testament history. Samuel. Right? It's a great story. But that's an example of her with a burdened heart coming before God fellowshipping with God, unburdening her heart before God, saying, this is my request. This is where I'm struggling. She's, and, and then God answers. In fact, God through the priest, remember even the high priest Eli comes up and he says, he blesses her as a result of that encounter. You can read it first Samuel chapter one. And yet it's a, it's a wonderful illustration of how that worked in the old covenant. And yet that old covenant was merely meant to foreshadow, to picture what would ultimately transpire in the new covenant, what Christ would accomplish, the better promises that the book of Hebrews talks about because of Christ. And the access that we are granted is incredible. The access that we have, and, and that's a sermon for another day. I've talked about it before. It would hijack the rest of our hour to talk about, to make a comparison contrast between Old Covenant and New Covenant and all the blessings we have in the New Covenant era and how there are so many upgrades to, that, to our, our walk with God, our relationship to God because of the sacrifice of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And there's, there's much that we can say. This passage is actually going to give us many of those pros and cons, if you will, or the, uh, the upgrades, better term, the upgrades that we get in the new covenant. But recognize that's what the term access is referring to. It's us being able to walk into the presence of God, to enjoy uh, his to fellowship with him, to enjoy his blessing, to gain an audience with him, because that's what Hannah had to do. Remember, I'm getting off into it just a little bit. But in the old covenant... There's like half a dozen places in the Old Testament where it talks about this, that if you were to pray to God, your prayer life had to go through the temple. You remember Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel? 
He's wanting to pray and ask God to send fire from heaven, but he times his prayer. When does he time it? It says it was the time of the evening sacrifice. Then he offers up his prayer. Daniel, book of, uh, Daniel chapter 6, same thing, time of the evening sacrifice. This happens two or three different times. New Testament, still happening. It says it was the hour of prayer. Peter and John go up to the temple to pray, Acts chapter 3. And then they encounter the lame man, right? And then Peter, you know, heals him by God's power. And then, of course, the guy, you know, goes and leaps and prays God. And, and then, of course, we have the, his second sermon, Acts chapter 3. But it was the hour of prayer. They were going to the temple. We could go on and on about this. But the point is, even gaining audience with God, you had to go through the sacrificial system because we can't approach God on our own in our sinfulness. But we go through the sacrificial system. Now we have access to God, which means not only fellowship, but audience. We can talk to him and he listens. These are important concepts. But in the new covenant era, the access that we have through Christ, through the spirit of God, to the Father is a remarkable upgrade. And this access is something that we, we should not take for granted, but rather we must understand the blessings that we have and what it costs God through the sacrifice of Christ to give us that access. It's an immense privilege that we have. I like to develop it with one more Old Testament passage, then we'll get off it. But I love to parallel this with Esther chapter 5. Some of you have heard me develop this before. In Esther chapter 5, Esther is trying to gain an audience before King Xerxes. Do you remember this? In the Persian court, the Persians, up to that point in history, the Persians were the most opulent court that history had ever seen. They were renowned. Even when the Greeks conquered the Persians, it, they, you know, they were awestruck at the, the wealth and the glory of the Persian court. The whole point is the Persian court was designed to magnify the king. He would sit on an exalted throne. He would have his entourage all around him. You would walk into a throne room overlaid with gold and ivory of all sorts. The wealth that was on display was meant to declare the power of the Persian king. Well, they also had a mechanism that you were not allowed access into the court of the Persian king unless you were invited. If you came in uninvited, they would cut your head off. Do you think that's an effective policy for, you know, I think it, yeah, I think it worked for them. Well, Esther, do you remember the story? There's urgency. She's like, I have not been invited to the king's presence, but I have to go and be, and, and on behalf of my people, the Jews, I have to plead with the king. So she says, all right, she risks life and limb, literally, <laughs> to go into the presence of the king. And do you remember the, the, the mechanism that when she comes in unannounced, the king, by Persian law, had right to kill her unless accepting her into his presence he would tip his scepter forward. Remember this? And then she would come and touch the scepter. And that was the mechanism by which the king grants access, audience, into his presence. Now, that is, again, it's an earthly kingly court of the Persians we're talking about, but it illustrates the point that for us also to have access to the throne room of God, because the throne room of the Persians that doesn't have anything, 
right, compared to the throne room of God, right? Read Isaiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5. Read Ezekiel chapter 1, places where it gives us a glimpse into that throne room of God. But if we are to have access and audience with the King of Kings, we must come not in our own sinfulness, in our own efforts, in our own self-righteousness, which is nothing but filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. Rather, we must come robed in the righteousness of another. We must come and be granted access in the name of another. Why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Because we are coming based upon his merits, based upon who he is. That's the idea. When I pray in Jesus' name, it's not merely, we often use it this way, but it's not merely a tag line at the end of the prayer. It's the spirit with which we pray. It's the means by which we have, as Paul says here in verse 18, we have access by one spirit because of Christ, the work of Christ and the, and the presence of the spirit in our, in our heart and our life. We have access to the Father uh, because of those things. And it's, that is the, the means by which we approach the heavenly King of kings and Lord of lords. And that sort of glorious access was achieved because of the cross work of Christ. That's what Paul wants us to recognize. He wants us to have that jaw-dropping, eye-popping moment where we say, wow, God lets us into his presence. God grants us full-fledged fellowship, citizenship, etc. Yes, that's what Paul wants us to get. So that's where, notice, that's where we're left off of the crosswork of Christ, the access we have to the Father. Now he's saying, this is what it means, okay? So verse 19 Paul is bringing things down to a conclusion. Do you see that? In verse 19, first phrase is now, therefore. Now, therefore, because of all that Christ has done, because we've been brought nigh by the blood, we have the spirit of God who is our seal to the day of redemption, etc. Because of that, he is now bringing us down to a conclusion. He's drawing out the implications of why God did what he did when he brought us nigh by the blood of Christ. Let's read this passage together, verse 19 to 22. He says this. He says, Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone of whom all or in whom, rather, all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, as we look at what Paul is climaxing with, the conclusion that he's bringing us down to, what he wants us to recognize in verses 19 to 22 is that through the gospel, God grants to us, his children, a sense of identity, belonging, and purpose. To communicate that basic idea, Paul is going to use three different analogies in these closing verses of the chapter in order to describe this relationship that we have with God as well as with other saints. Here's the three analogies, and we'll just take these one at a time through the remainder of the hour, and it's a very fitting sermon. I didn't really plan it this way, but we have a baptism at the end of the service, and this is such a wonderful uh, sermon for prepping for a baptism because it's telling us how we are these three things. If we're in Christ, we are, number one, fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. You're joining the ranks. 
fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. Number two, your fellow members of the household of God or the family of God. Your fellow citizens in the kingdom of God, but your fellow members in the household or the family of God. And then third, your fellow components of a new and living temple of God. You are one of the building blocks of what God is doing in this age to build his temple for his purposes. If you are in Christ because of the gospel, you have a new identity. You have a new purpose. You have a new place to belong because you are a fellow citizen in the kingdom of God, a fellow member of the household of God, and fellow components of a new and living temple of God. This is exciting stuff. Let's look at it. Number one, we're fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, recognize verse 19 is meant to dramatically contrast verses 11 and 12 earlier in the chapter. Recall with me briefly, back in verse 11 and 12, this is how he begins this paragraph. Talking to Gentiles, he says this, Wherefore, remember that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We already developed those thoughts and those concepts in a prior sermon a couple of weeks back. But recognize that our verse in verse 19 is dramatically contrasting that. You once were strangers, aliens, foreigners from God, his people, his nation, and his covenant. But now the tables have turned. Paul is now announcing their citizenship in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. You're no longer Gentile outsiders, as we've been saying, but you are now Christian insiders. He says you go from being strangers and foreigners to fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So that term, fellow citizen with the saints, is what I want to develop for just a moment. We've talked about this before. In fact, in our study of the book of Acts, if you recall, I'll just briefly review the highlights here today, but we gave a whole sermon to this one concept. We were studying the book of Acts when Paul gets arrested in the temple. Do you remember that? That's a pretty helpful background chapter for Ephesians 2, isn't it? We talked about that last week, right? When Paul was arrested in Acts chapter 21, right? The temple... And we talked about how he was accused of bringing a Gentile past that barricade. I showed you pictures of the barricade last week. Well, when he gets, you know, when he's arrested in the temple and he's uh, taken before the Roman authorities, he describes or he, he discloses to the Roman authorities that he's a Roman citizen. That is what then, of course, kicks off the next several chapters of the book of Acts is the Romans say, whoa, wait a minute, you're a Roman? You're one of us? Okay, well, that changes everything because now their protocol kicks into gear and they have to treat Paul a particular way because he's a citizen of Rome. He had a Roman citizenship, which was prized in the ancient world. So when we got to that point in the book of Acts, we paused and we did a one-week sermon on Paul, what citizenship meant for Paul, what Roman citizenship was, the benefits, etc., how you get that. And then we compared it with what Paul will later announce as our heavenly citizenship. Briefly, if you got your, keep your finger here, but go to Philippians chapter one real quick. It's just the next book over. You're in Ephesians, take a right. One more book, Philippians. Let me develop this real quick. You have this concept coming up two times in the book of Philippians, and then we see the concept many other times in the New Testament, book of Revelation, we'll talk about it much. But Philippians is a great place to go where Paul declares this idea that Christians are now citizens 
of the kingdom of heaven. And do you remember the background here? I don't have this uh, very elaborate in your notes, but do you remember the background? Philippians is written to the church at Philippi. Philippi was renowned in antiquity because they had the italic rite. The italic rite meant that their city, because remember, it's not in Rome, you know, as in Italy proper. I mean, the city of Philippi is not in Italy, but they were treated as if it was Italian soil. That's what italic rite means. They were exempt from taxes. Wouldn't that be nice? They were exempt from taxes. They were all granted citizenship. If you were born in the city of Philippi, you were granted automatically a Roman citizenship. You didn't even have to be Roman ethnically, but you were granted a Roman citizenship if you were born in, in Philippi. Why? Do you remember the history? Philippi was granted these great privileges by Rome because there was a, there was a turning point earlier in Roman history. It's uh, right before New Testament times. Uh, but I mean, it's actually real close, but it's before New Testament times. You have, remember Julius Caesar? Anyone ever heard of him, right? Kind of important guy in history. If you don't, if you never heard his name, for crying out loud, read a book sometime, okay? <laughs> but <laughs> Julius Caesar <laughs> was, uh, you know, he, he was dictator of Rome, right? He, he, and he, he was declaring himself dictator for life. And they actually, he was assassinated because of that. Right? If you know Roman history, they don't like kings, right? So they assassinate Julius Caesar because he was declaring himself king for life. Basically, they, did, they feared he would become king of Rome. Well, that started a civil war in Roman history, right? You have the guy who, you have Cassius and Brutus, right? These are the guys that, that assassinated uh, Caesar, and then they go on the run. Well, then you have Caesar's, you know, Julius Caesar's heir, a guy by the name of Octavian, who was a sickly little kid that was the nephew to, to Julius Caesar. He, he teams up with Julius Caesar's right-hand man, Mark Antony. You ever heard that name before? Okay, right. So Mark Antony and, and Octavian, he's, uh, you know, join up. Octavian will, or Octavius will also be called Augustus later. But the point is, there's a civil war, and they start chasing down the, the people who assassinated Julius Caesar. Well, guess what? They corner them outside of the city of Philippi. There's a battle called the Battle of Philippi. And in that battle, the inhabitants of the city of Philippi come out and help Mark Antony and uh, Octavian. So that's the turning point in the battle. As a result, they bless the city of Philippi with the honor of the Italic Rite. Okay? Are you all with me? Okay. So Paul now writes to Philippi, and he uses that background because that's where all these people in Philippi, that's what they enjoy is the Italic Rite, automatic Roman citizenship. They're proud of that. They're proud of their Roman citizenship. But Paul says, guys, that's great, but... You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your conversation, and that's the word uh, in Greek, it's actually referring to their citizenship. It's actually derived, we get the word politic from it. But it's the idea is let your conversation, your lifestyle, be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else I be absent, may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind. And that's, he's, he's pulling 
Again, another analogy there, the stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together, is a mili- those are all military words. He says, make sure that you hold your ranks, that you are unified as citizens of heaven. Notice he'll say the same thing later in chapter 3. Let me read this, Philippians 3, verse 20. He says, for our conversation, there's the word again, our citizenship. You could even substitute the word. Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. I love that, right? I mean, this is like the ultimate dieting program. <laughs> change your vile body, but he's going to do it in the resurrection, right? We are, if we are in Christ, we have eternal life. And our vile body, and the word vile is actually the word that literally means humiliated, our body that has been humiliated because of sin, our body that is falling apart because of sin and the curse will be restored. It will be transformed at the coming of Christ. And he's talking about how our ultimate loyalty, right? Because that's the whole point Paul's making. He says, okay, you Philippians, you're citizens of Rome. That's great. You're loyal to Rome. That's great. He says, however, your true citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, our ultimate loyalty should be to heaven, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And he's coming back and he's going to transform everything. He's going to rule and reign this earth. And so he says, if, and, and this is again elsewhere developed, but if our earthly citizenship ever comes into con- contrast or conflict with our heavenly citizenship, which one are we to be most loyal to? Heaven, right? Someone give me a nod, give me an amen. Yep, heavenly citizenship. Okay, all right, making sure we're all on the same page. So, so Paul is telling us, hey, this is who you are in Christ. Now, you and I know this, right? We understand this idea of being a citizen. We understand the idea of pride of place, patriotic love of country. Those are powerful identity-shaping factors. They can provide a strong sense of identity and purpose. We can see that over and over again. We have a lot of people in our church who have been part of the military. And that concept is hugely, uh, it's near and dear to their heart that we, we often, in fact, even coming up uh, with, with Keith Flint's memorial service, we'll do a flag ceremony honoring his time in the military. This is a common thing. But this idea of pride of place, patriotic love of country is a hugely important thing that shapes so much of our identity and our purpose in life. We are citizens of our country, which means there are things that responsibilities that we have if we're going to, going to be good citizens. Now, you can be a bump on a log, worthless citizen, or you can be a good one that's operating as salt and light as Christ would have us operate. But that sort of good citizenship is what Paul is saying. He says we, it's not only a place that you know, gives us a sense of identity, but also purpose because we have a job to do. To be a good citizen of heaven, we have a job to do. And so this is a hugely important thing that Paul is inviting these Gentiles into this because they all came from other countries, different ethnicities, different citizenships that they held. But he says, now you guys in Christ, you are fellow citizens with the saints. It means you are part of this group of people known as the people of God. You will be part of the kingdom of God when Christ descends and sets it up. And this idea is not only identity and purpose now, but it also gives us hope for the future. And there's a commission that's ahead of us. 
We have much more than mere citizenship. We also have a commission. We will one day rule and reign with Christ. This is one of the most climactic promises in the book of Revelation. We won't go there for, th- for sake of time, but write these down. Revelation 1, 2, chapter 5, chapter 20, chapter 22 are various passages throughout the book of Revelation that tells us we will one day, if you're a believer in Christ, you will rule and reign with Christ. We will be part of his heavenly kingdom. We won't go and develop it for sake of time, but I love to couple these ideas with the idea that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are now as Christians called ambassadors of Christ. An ambassador, right? What is that? It's a representative of a foreign government on foreign soil, right? In other words, right now, I'm a citizen of heaven. The kingdom of heaven's not here yet. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is gonna happen one day. But heaven's kingdom is coming. I'm praying for it. But in the meantime, I'm an ambassador. I'm on foreign soil. And so I'm to live ultimately loyal to that kingdom, but trying to be an ambassador and impact this kingdom, this world, telling them that the next one is coming. I'm to be an ambassador, a representative of heaven's kingdom. So Paul says in verse 19, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. The end of the verse, however, he takes us to our second idea. You're not merely fellow citizens with the saints, but you are also fellow members of the household of God. He says at the end of verse 19, he says, and of the household of God. Let's develop this for just a few moments before we get to the the third and final, which is where Paul spends most of his time. Uh, in verse 20, 21, 22. But let's notice we're not only granted citizenship in heaven, we're fellow citizens with the saints, but we're also, he says, of the household of God. This idea is, of course, a reference to the family of God. This concept of the family is hugely important. The most basic institution of any society is to be found in the family unit. This is where we develop, learn, grow. We uh, learn healthy attachments, and we learn to thrive. In the home, in the family, as God designed it, this is how we learn life. This is the first stage of growing to maturity in adulthood is in a family. And this idea of the family, most basic institution, even at creation, God makes the family unit. uh, Again, so core. We talked about that a little bit in the morning session during Sunday school hour when we were quoting uh, Genesis chapter 2. If you're coming to an upcoming marriage conference on Saturday, we're going to be talking about companionship in the creation context. We're going to march through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and look at marriage in light of that. There's so much to learn. But we see this idea of the family unit being most fundamental the way God designed it. And, I mean, I really can't spend a lot of time on it. I've got a whole sermon on this one too. Man, this is what happens, man, when you start teaching for any length of time, right? I'm coming up on like 15 years of full-time teaching, and I got a sermon for everything. You know what I'm saying? But when I was teaching through the Psalter, Psalm 127 uh, was, man, it just really hit me because it's describing this idea of the family unit as most fundamental to society and to a nation and to the world. And how so many times, right, various Political ideologies will tell you that the family is not important, but the government, the state, is all important. That's getting it backwards, because if you don't have a solid family unit, ultimately, you're going to have a breakdown in your society. 
And if your society breaks down, no government can ultimately be sustained. And so they're getting the cart before the horse. The family is most important societal institution. And it's, oh man, we could get lost in this. It's really, really important. But the point is, Paul is saying, you guys are now part of the family of God. You have a place where you belong. Because unfortunately, while that is the case, right, that this, this family or home life is the most basic institution of a society, unfortunately, many people grow up outside of the confines of a loving and secure family. We could go on and on. We were talk, I was talking about it just recently with a couple of church members. The statistics of how many people grow up without fathers or they, bro, they grow up in broken homes and how, st- how statistically they're way more likely to end up in prison, violent crimes, drug addictions, etc. And unfortunately, many people in our society are growing up outside of the confines of a loving and secure family. They don't have that. As a result, they often have a sense of loss and uncertainty. This is where the they, gangs become attractive, right? Because at least it gives you a place to belong. It gives you something to do, to contribute. But these people who are lost without, with a sense of uncertainty and they don't have a place to belong, they end up, more often than not, getting into trouble. They're a plague upon society. Well, in Christ, Paul is saying that as we are in Christ, we now have part of the family of God. God, as our loving Father, wants to communicate to his children, as we sang just moments ago, how deep the Father's love for us. That concept is is the heartbeat of the Bible. But our heavenly Father, our loving Father, wants to communicate to his children that they do have a place in his cosmic family. We won't go there for the sake of time, but 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul calls the church the family of God, the household of God. I've, I've counseled many a people that grew up in a broken home and a broken family only to discover later that they have a family right here, that there is a family that they do belong in, They have a place of belonging, a place of security, someone to call up when they need help. That's what God, one of the ways God has designed the church to function is to be the family of God. And so many times, this is where it gets really sad, and we'll talk about it later because that's Ephesians 4, and we talked about it a little bit last week. But this is the way God's designed the church. It is so sad when the church doesn't function that way. And rather than being a family where there's a place of warmth and belonging, there's infighting, there's disharmony, there's broken relationships. And the church, rather than functioning as the family of God, we start fighting each other. And we're a dysfunctional family. You know what I'm saying? And what a shame that is. Because we lose, as we'll see in our next point, we lose our effectiveness to the world but we also lose that sense of belonging right here where people, they come, but they feel lost. They feel invisible. Don't let that happen. If you're here and you're new, boy, glad to have you. Introduce yourself. If you're here and you're old, you've been here a while. Can I put that gently? (laughs) If you're here and you're old, go introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. Why? 
because we're a family. All are welcome, right? Come on in. But we're rallying around the gospel of Christ. This is what makes us family. This is where our unity lies. Much more on that in chapter 4, because Paul is going to dive into it. But let's look, third and finally, at this third metaphor that Paul gives us. We're not only fellow citizens with the saints, also, as he says, we're fellow members of the family of God, but third and finally, we are fitted into the temple of God. We are fellow components to what God is doing in this age as he's building his temple. Look again at verse 20 to 22. He says this, And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now again, this role of apostles and prophets that he, he highlights here in verse 20, we're going to make a bigger deal of that in chapter 4 when he, when he revisits this theme. But suffice it to say for now, in verse 20, what he's saying is that this grand temple that God is building, he's likening the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, the, the corporate community of believers that gather together in a local place. He's likening us to a glorious temple that God is in the process of building. The foundation, however, of this temple is the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The foundation upon which we build, the most important component is Jesus himself. There would not be a church without Jesus. The first reference to church anywhere in the Bible is Matthew chapter 18, well, 16 and 18. The book of Matthew gives us our first couple of references to the idea of church, where Jesus launches this idea, and he says he will build his church. Yet he did it through not only his death, burial, resurrection, but then he commissioned a special group of men that he labeled apostles that had a prophetic function. They are the New Testament counterpart to your Old Testament prophet. And these men were used by God to give us, as he says in John chapter 14 to 16, the Upper Room Discourse, to give us all the truth necessary so that we can live in God's ways and follow Christ and be the Christian church that we are designed to be. So this foundation is Christ, made up of Christ and the apostles. It's the Bible. It's what these apostles have given to us, the revelation of who Christ is, what did he do? What did he come to teach? That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's the Gospels. All the other books of the New Testament are the writings of these apostolic delegates. They form the foundation of the church. If you go outside of the Bible, then you are outside of the church because this is the foundation upon which we build the church. And so that's a hugely important concept. We've talked about it many times in our study of the book of Acts. We visited and revisited and revisited that concept. We'll see it again in chapter 4. But he says this temple is first built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Then he says in verse 21 that this building is fitly framed together. Now this idea, this term fitted together or fitly framed together may well have been coined, as I have in your notes, by the Apostle Paul himself. It's a very emphatic word, 
that describes being utilized in a building along with other parts. Some of you are builders. We have some contractors in the room, some amateur wannabe contractors in the room, right? Some of you that the biggest contractor I do is I make my Awana Derby car for my kids every year, right? I mean, that's kind of like, that's the extent of my contracting skills. No, I was kidding. I did used to roof. I was a roofer for a while, so I can, you know, throw down some shingles. I can do that. But I'm pretty limited. But even in, you know, take any building process, this one is primarily viewing a, uh, the building process of masonry. The idea of building with blocks, stone, is probably what this idiom is, is leaning upon most uh, fundamentally. But you can, again, I mean, if you've ever done a roof, I was a roofer for a couple of years, and put on several roofs. Again, the whole idea is each shingle has its place. You have to overlay lay them just right. Otherwise, you're going to have leaks in your roof. But the whole idea is you have to get all those components to fit together properly in the right place, in the right sequence, so that you can construct something. You can build something, whether it's a wall out of stone or whether you're framing with wood or whether you're putting on shingles on a roof. The analogy remains the same. The point is, the term fitly framed together means that he's taking each individual part and he's putting them where they belong in right relationship to the other parts so that we now have a unified whole. We have a whole that works. It accomplishes the function. But according to our text, we must ask the question, what is God building? Well, he tells us in verse 21 and 22. He's, he's building something that is fitly framed together, everything in its right, proper place, and it's growing unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also we're built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So what is God building? God is building a new temple. He's, dwell, he's building a dwelling place where he, wherein he can dwell via the Spirit of God. This is a hugely important concept that we're going to develop for just a few minutes as much as time will allow. Then we'll transition to the baptism, uh, enjoy participating, witnessing that, and then we'll dismiss for the, for the day. But notice first that it says we're fitly framed together. The point is, every member of a church becomes an added component in what God is building. God is trying to accomplish something. God is a master builder. Many believe that Jesus himself, right, the term Carpenter is the word tectone in Greek, and it really just means builder. And there's not a lot of wood to build with. Jesus may have been a, you know, he, I'm sure he worked with wood to a certain degree, but he probably was a stonemason, and he worked with building stones, you know, with stones, building walls, building houses, building, and we, that's mainly what they build with in ancient Israel. And the whole idea is that he's taking these various components, and have you ever done that? where you're, you're building something and this piece just doesn't quite fit right. And so you, you, you put that aside and you, you select a different piece for what you're trying to do right here. But then you discover that that piece you set aside fits perfectly later on in a different place. That analogy is used many times. In fact, all the gospels will record this where Jesus is likened to the stone that the builders often rejected. And yet he has made the head of the corner. And there's a really important idiom, an analogy that's being built there. But the concept is that each individual part, Christ being the most important part, he's right. I mean, we, we wouldn't have a church without him. But now since him and the apostles and the prophets, the foundation that has been laid, we who are all components to this temple that God is building, each individual member has a place in the process. 
and you need to find your place. Again, Ephesians chapter 4 is going to talk a lot more about this when we get there. But he's going to talk about how each individual member has been specifically gifted by God in a particular way. And your giftedness affords you the opportunity and the skill set by the Spirit of God to participate in what God is doing, to be a component, a part of what is going on in a local assembly. So he says each individual member is to be fitly framed together, to be put in the right proper place where they're contributing to the whole. And what we see is that this, this concept is really important, but as people enter into a relationship with Christ, the building increases in size. It says we are being, it says in verse 21, it grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. That term to grow up unto is the idea that as the building increases in size, more people come, more people are added, we'll see the building grows. Now there's two types of growth that we'll see in the book of Ephesians here This growth in chapter 2 is most likely talking about numerical growth, more people coming, more people joining the ranks, more people finding their place in a local community. But we'll see once we get to chapter 4, verses 12 to 15, that growth is not only in external numbers, but internal Christ-likeness. That growth is not merely buildings and bank accounts and butts in the seats, as they used to say, <laughs> right? Building banks accounts and butts in the seats. That's not how you measure growth exclusively. That can be part of it, sure. But how you measure it, according to chapter 4, is Christ-likeness. He says, do you want to see the measurement of what we need to grow into? He says, look at Christ. Christ-likeness in all of its glory your character looking like Jesus, that is growth. And so it's important. It's important to notice in chapter two and chapter four, the balanced idea that Paul has on what true growth is. Because many times we see growth externally, but not internally, or vice versa, growth internally, but not a lot, you know, numerically. And that's okay. We need to balance it out and recognize God's design is for each member to find their place, to belong. More members come, absolutely, but each member needs to grow individually, to find their place, to contribute to the whole. So what we see then, this this is a huge analogy throughout the rest of the epistles, but this idea of construction sort of language, this is a huge undercurrent throughout New Testament epistles. It's actually the the term built up or edification, it's the same word, it's the same concept. So what the apostles call us to do and each church to do is to contribute. And it actually will liken this to a priestly task. But we are contributing to the building up of the temple by edifying one another in love. Here's just a quick, Patrick Schreiner points this out. Here's just a quick list. And this is not exhaustive. And this is a sermon for another day. But here's a list. What can you do to not only find your place, but to be a contributing member, helping build up other members. Glad you asked. Schreiner says this. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says that we can love one another. Love builds up the church. Do you want to edify the church? The word edify means to build up. It's, it's all part of this same metaphor. You want to build up the church? Do you want to be something that is part of the solution, not the problem? Number one, love your fellow members. Number two, prophecy. The truth of the scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, builds up. The equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, that's Ephesians 4, 12. 
That builds up. It edifies the church. Gracious speech, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. And encouraging words, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.11. These are means by which we build one another up. We edify one another. And as such, we are contributing to what God is doing in building up this glorious temple. So again, this idea of growth, both in maturity and numerically, grants to believers a sense of mission and purpose because God is building something in which to dwell, that is to make himself known. Let me develop this last thought and then we'll transition to baptism. Recognize that each of us are individual members. Each of us have a job to do where we can contribute to the overall whole, that we can add, we can edify, we can add new members, we can help mature current members where we're growing deeper in our walk with with God. We're looking more like Christ in our character, in our speech, etc. But the whole point, don't miss the big point, is we're all individual components. But when you add us together, we are collectively now the temple of God. Now, the temple of God is what Paul just said earlier, right, that that great Herodian temple, the Temple Mount. I showed you pictures of it last week. That temple has now been fulfilled in Christ. That temple is no longer necessary because of the death of Christ, the presence of the Spirit of God. Rather, God is building a new temple. He's And again, don't miss the metaphor, the temple, the new temple in the new covenant is us. It's the community of believers. And just like in the Old Testament, this is a hugely important concept. Hugely important. I got like four minutes to summarize. But just like in the Old Testament, when God wanted to choose a place where he could reveal himself, where he could interact with the world, he chose Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, you see a lot of language like that. I didn't put the references up, but Deuteronomy 12 is a great place to start. Then check out your cross references, trace it through the Bible. But we see God is on the hunt in the Old Covenant. For the place, the perfect location whereby God can manifest his presence, he would literally fill the temple of God. Do you remember when in the wilderness tabernacle, they, they build it and then they dedicate it and then the presence of God comes and fills it. Same thing with Solomon's temple later. When that happens and the glory cloud is resting over the tabernacle or later the temple, when that happens, God has chosen a place to, from which... He can interact with the world. He can be visible, present. He can interact. He can speak. And as he does this, and and this is another whole thing, right? But this is another sermon I got, but Jerusalem was the perfect place for this. It was the intersecting place between three continents. It was the bottleneck on the international highway. The whole world would go through Jerusalem at one point. And And God strategically in history, chose the perfect place, the perfect time, the perfect way to build his temple. And from there, he declared himself to the ends of the earth. But that's old covenant. Now we're in the new covenant. And what is the temple that God is building? Where is God making himself visible? How is God interacting with the world? How's he doing it? It's us. God is doing it through us. That's what he's saying. He says, verse 22, in whom also you are builded together as a habitation of God. Where does God inhabit? Us, through the Spirit. Does that make sense? That's how, that's who we are. That's our identity, that's our purpose, that's our commission is to know God and reveal him to the world. 
Now, as I said a moment ago, this sermon, I didn't design it this way on purpose. It just kind of was providence. But this sermon that gives us this focus of a place to belong, becoming part of the family, you know, becoming part of the temple, if you will, and what God is doing, this is so beautiful in how it sets us up for baptism. Here today, we do have a baptism that we're, and the kids are coming in. We want them to see and participate, witness in this baptism here. But today we have Dominic getting baptized. Dominic and I have had, again, several conversations about the purpose of baptism, purpose of the gospel, etc. Many of you have gone through that interview or that, uh, uh, I even have a little handout where it kind of helps you work through it, you know, on paper, homework to understand salvation and baptism. But the baptism, according to the New Testament, is a declaration of your faith in Christ. Dominic's here today in order to declare that. He's going to say, hey, publicly, right, in front of everybody. Thanks, guys. They're taking the lid off for us. And it's plenty warm. It's roasty-toasty. I checked it earlier, so we're good. Yeah, Dominic's thumbs up. He's like, I got this. No problem. But with baptism, the purpose of baptism is a public announcement, a public display of his his private declaration of, of faith in Christ, right? His personal profession of faith is now being made public via baptism. So baptism, in a sense, is that declaration that he is a member of the household of God, that he is a component in the temple of God. And this is the whole point, is so that we know one more member's joining the community. One more has made profession of faith in Christ. He has demonstrated that belief in Christ. I, I hammer it every time, but baptism doesn't save, right? Baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. Rather, it's a declaration of your salvation. But it's an important step in order to show the world of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to publicly be identified as a fellow citizen of the kingdom of God, a member of the family of God, and a component in the temple of God. So, with that said, my man, are you ready? All right, come on up. Let's let's transition to baptism.